Good morning, everybody. Um, these days, all of us, I'm sure all of us here, have some piece of technology in our house, whether it's just a TV remote control, a microwave oven, or an iPad. But I wonder what your reaction is when it goes a bit loopy, you know, when the control panel packs up, or it goes haywire, or the device seems lost in a spin cycle of electronic mayhem. Is it to dust off the the instruction manual and to go back to basics, or hunt around for some fresh AA batteries, or press control and escape for dear life? as I sometimes do. Well, one of the better-known strategies to all of us, which uh, I've had countless opportunities to be thankful for, is to switch the power of the thing off, wait 10 seconds, and then switch it on again. And sometimes all that whirring and stuttering are simply replaced by a calm and functioning machine. It doesn't always work, but it's amazing how often resetting things can make the difference. Wouldn't it be wonderful if in the middle of one of our very stressful days or when we're feeling poorly, we had a similar reset button that would just get our emotions back to stability? I would be thankful for that. Well, I've just come back for, uh, from a retreat in uh, Northumberland on the coast, a wild and lonely place, renting a cottage there. Um, and it could be cold at night, even uh, at the moment, and I was for a, while there, for a while there the victim of a boiler which was kept behind a locked cupboard in this cottage that simulated a severe winter in Vladivostok during the night and high season in Dubai during the day. Um, Julie, the cottage owner, very helpful Geordie, uh, popped round when I could literally take no more of this. She admitted that she was always foxed by this boiler and how it really worked, but as she unlocked the cupboard... She explained that she usually resorted to pressing the reset button and starting all over again. Now, that idea that I've introduced of resetting things can be applied to the history of the Bible, too. Let me explain very briefly how. We know that God created the world and Adam and Eve went their own way, rejected his plans for explorations of their own. But if we think about it, God at that moment pressed the reset button. He's only done it twice in the whole of history, so it was pretty special. He pressed the reset button and commissioned Abraham to be the father of a nation which would be his people. To live in a land that he promised and be a blessing to the world at large. Now, after he pressed reset, it wasn't without problems, as we know, because uh, they went into slavery in their temporary home in Egypt. It took God through Moses to rescue them, and through the Red Sea they went. And as they moved through God, uh, God's direction in the desert, it was time for God to set a few ground rules about what it really meant to flesh out those words to Abraham and what it meant to be his people and a blessing to others. And that meant rules about the relationship between themselves and God, as well as rules about how to live with each other. And it's the first part of that, the relationship with God bit, that's covered in our passage today, the first four of the Ten Commandments, the remainder to follow next week. And indeed, those rules have become known as the Ten Commandments. And there was a time in English church history when those Ten Commandments would have been written on every church wall. So important are they. I mean, these days, 
we tend to flick over them, click through them a little bit. There's often a recollection of we won't commit murder or commit adultery, but beyond that, things can get a little bit sketchy. So today gives us a chance to reflect, as I say, on the first four of those commandments, together, sometimes known as the law, particularly those that relate to our relationship with God as they were given to Moses as the Israelites waited at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we're going to look at them together in three ways. First, what they actually say, one by one, skipping through them, which I summarize as one God, that there is only one God. What's behind them, the motivation for God delivering them to Moses at that moment, which I call one love, and how they were ultimately brought to life, one saviour. The summary of that talk that I'm about to give is on uh, the sermon summary sheet here and also the passage which I'll refer to, particularly as we flick through the commandments, uh, the first four is on page 77. So first of all, one God. Now, Philip made the point last week at this service that the law is given to those who have already been saved, rather than as a set of hurdles that we have to cross over, jump over, before the finishing line of salvation comes into sight. And there's a reminder of that right at the beginning of our passage in verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. God introduces himself in that way. That's his calling card. His calling card is that he is the God who has saved the Israelites from the clutches of Pharaoh in Egypt. So the context for law giving is, it's me, I'm the one who saved you, let's have some ground rules for how this relationship is going to work to meet the covenant, the promise that I made to Abraham. And Exodus swings into the commandment straight there, straight away in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment. Now, alternative gods were prevalent at the time. Gods to whom people attributed supernatural powers that emphasized strength, wealth, or beauty. And God is saying if this relationship between us is going to work, we need to put each other first. Now, if we're not challenged even now by the idea that we need to put God first then possibly we need to think about it again. I'm severely challenged by just that first commandment with nine to go. At times we pour ourselves into our work and our reputation. At times we're so proud of the rewards of our work, a smart home, a good car, a well-maintained garden, that those things take on an importance that they become almost the purpose of our lives, the focus of our aspiration. Or we dream of a life where we'll experience some luxury retirement far away in a different place. Or we invest our hope in our children and their education and the prospects of a brighter future for them. When, as was said last week, good things like that become ultimate things, 
That's the danger. None of these things we're told in this commandment are to take precedence over our following of the God of salvation. It's to him and he alone that takes first place in our lives. So that is about who we worship. The God of salvation with all of our hearts. The second commandment tackles how we worship. So we've had the who, this is the how. And God makes it clear here that that's not to be directed through idols, through representations of other gods, or even of the true God. Not through paintings, through sculpture, through objects, through tokens, or through jewellery. It's like God saying to us, I've already revealed the truth about myself. You already know who I am. It's in my word. It's in my word. That's all you need. Now the interpretation of that commandment alone, that second commandment, has rippled through church history. Creating division and separation concerning the nature of appropriate images for worship. It's the reason why some churches are stripped of all images, even of Jesus Christ. And why Others, on the other hand, believe that iconography, i.e. pictures of sacred and holy things, is not idolization, but the gateway to worship. I would just say that from our point of view here in Claygate, it's good to always remember, as I think we try to do, that we're here to worship God. Our music, our art... Our dress, our ways of doing something must never themselves become things that are worshipped or set themselves up to be representations of God. Handel's Messiah is good, but it's not that good. Now, God has revealed himself in his word. And we are to fill our minds with it, use our creativity to imagine what it says, apply it. Seek it and celebrate it by the Spirit. Let his word dwell in us. This is acceptable worship. That's what God says to us in that second commandment. The third, verse 7. What it is, or what is it, to misuse the name of the Lord your God? You see, a sign that our relationship with God is healthy is that his name is precious to us. That we approach it with reverence and with love. And that means we don't use it lightly or as an expletive or attach it to an object of our affection from a favourite song to a football team. You know, Manchester United are not a god, if any doubt remains. The exclamation of OMG is an unthinking trivialization of a name that's sacred to us as Christians. The thing that God has revealed about himself, his holiness, his redemptive power, his judgment, his love, his provision, these are things of which we can be sure and that would make him smile as if they were part of our worship of him. You know, relationships, you don't need me to tell you perhaps, don't strengthen when the other person's name becomes a byword for something unworthy. And so it is with this relationship. 
And finally, as we move through these first four commandments, the last of the four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's there in verse 8. Why remember the Sabbath day? Because, verse 11, it's what God did. He worked for six days and rested on the seventh, we're told. God sets the pattern, we follow. Now, it seems to me observing the Sabbath has become a bit twisted into the protection of Sundays. As Christians, I don't think we own Sunday. What we are called to do is to have a day of rest, a holy day day, set apart for God. It's the reason I'm not dashing to London this afternoon for a friend's reunion near Waterloo. And it's the reason so many of us want to spend the day with family. I had a beautiful sunny Sunday afternoon two weeks ago in lovely Roundhay Park in Leeds. Some of you may know it. And people from every background, minority, race, were there together in a lovely park, enjoying the weather, eating ice cream and laughing. You could tangibly see relationships being grown, being repaired, and people investing in their relationships away from work. It's what God hopes for from us. A day of rest when our relationship with him has downtime. A chance to enjoy each other to be strengthened and to be invested in where we follow his example and rest. So those are the first four commandments and I summarize them under the heading of one God. Our relationship with him is paramount. He alone is our God, the one who saved us. And we're to limit ourselves to what he's revealed about himself, uphold his name, and imitate his rhythm of grace through the week. Is our beginning and end, our A to Z. That is the what. That's my interpretation of what those four commandments mean. But how about The why. Why does God need, really need, to give us a set of rules for our relationship? Isn't love enough? Doesn't he trust us? Well, I want to suggest a few reasons behind the Ten Commandments and that there is a single motivation, which is love. There's a song that Sting used to sing that some of you may recall. If you love somebody, set them free. It's an idea that's appealing. And um, therefore, it makes me think, isn't the idea of commandments and love somewhat in contradiction? Well, not always, I would argue. Which loving parent, when a child first learns to walk, would take them straight to Isha High Street? Which parent wouldn't want some control over what a five-year-old looks at? on the screen in front of them? Which father wouldn't want a child to show respect to its mother? Or to follow helpful patterns of behavior? Enshrining those 
type of codes in verbal or written rules is not an uncommon part of being a parent. I'm sure I did it a few times. Probably had to rip them up a few times as well. Its motivation as best is not control or laziness. It's wanting to protect someone that we love from danger, physical, mental, spiritual, from damaging precious relationships. Now, the Israelites, waiting there at the foot of the mountain, were not children, perhaps. They certainly wouldn't have thought of themselves as such. But they were, at the start of a very long and demanding journey with God, which required faith and rules for maintaining the relationship. They were recently born in the faith, finding their feet in what it meant to follow God and needing handrails to make the right steps. God's motivation was to protect them and that born of love. And the second part of the motivation, it's clear from reading the text's direction, is that God wanted the relationship between him and his people to be exclusive. One God, not three, remember. His love for his people was something special, that he wanted no divided loyalties. He wanted intimacy and respect. Can you imagine getting married and a new husband or wife saying, you don't mind if I keep seeing three other people, do you? Not a recipe for success. Can you imagine a marriage where the relationship wasn't authentic? For example, where the husband lost touch touch with his real partner and became infatuated with a public image or a career or a clothes. Can you imagine a marriage where the partner's name became slang for something unworthy or pedestrian? That is not what God wanted for his relationship with his people. He wanted exclusivity, intimacy, and respect. In other words, to bear the hallmarks of love. And that was so dear to him, he enshrined that commitment in law, gave it to them through Moses, and asked the same of them. Now I wonder so far in this talk, what your response has been to going deeper into the first four commandments. You might be at the beginning of a walk with God and still finding out what's involved, let alone considering tough choices about what comes first. Or you might have been walking with the Lord for some time, but haven't looked closely at applying the core meaning of the commandments to your own life recently. Or you might have heard about them again today. And as an established Christian, you've realized that having that type of relationship with God, that intimacy, that respect, that exclusivity, is something that you'd love to have. But equally something that day-to-day life makes really challenging to achieve. Well, if that's true, then help is at hand. And we're in good company because the remainder of the Old Testament concerns people whose relationship with God pretty much always fell short of the ideal, where the notion of one God 
was continually obfuscated by golden calves, the thirst for power, riches, and forbidden fruits. Where laws become gods, where kings stood in God's way, and where idols became false gods. In short, the Israelites couldn't keep the commandments. Their hearts were drawn to other things. They fell into every type of sin imaginable, if not in the act, then in the desire to act. They couldn't keep their side of the bargain with God, and the relationship suffered. Does that sound like anyone? Like us, perhaps? But God's love was not exhausted when those things that he'd hoped for and enshrined did not go well. Because his love for his people was so great that he didn't have an end date or a good behavior clause. It was the best kind of love. It was unconditional love. God showed the protecting interests of a good parent, the faithfulness of a devoted spouse, and the unconditionality of love that was powerful and divine. So far from packing his bags when things didn't go to plan, ending the relationship or coming up with a new Abraham, he transformed things forever for Israel, for you, and for me. How? Come to our final part of my talk. Because when the temperature of the relationship between God and his people fell to rock bottom, like Vladivostok, God, for the second time in history, pressed the reset button. Reset because he wanted to straighten things out again, to make them right and get them back to how they were meant to be. That new covenant, that new promise, that new set of relationship criteria that was enshrined in a new saviour, Jesus Christ, coming amongst us. And our being right with God was brought about now, not by our compliance with commandments, but through faith in Jesus Christ by being right with God, being in the right relationship with God, now comes just simply through believing in Jesus, rather than anything that we might have done or might do in the future. And that is why the gospel is good news. That's why the law doesn't weigh you and me down. It need not defeat us or prove to be a set of of, of hurdles that we can't clear. Jesus has taken the weight of that away from us. So it's no longer a burden. And all the times we trip over the hurdles have been squared off with God by his carrying that burden for us on the cross. Now that doesn't mean that the commandments are a historical irrelevance. Jesus himself reiterated the first four commandments and the theology of one God when he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind in Luke 10. 
Following Jesus, it seems to me, is not primarily, therefore, about duty. It is primarily about the verb that he uses there, love. And to abide in his love. To feel his protection in danger or anxiety. To experience his faithfulness at difficult times. And to know that his love is unconditional and is there regardless of our deserving. So let me just bring things to a close now, if I may. Well, many of us here today, over the last couple of weeks, have been going along to telling our story on Wednesday nights and Thursday mornings, a course that Mike Barton is running to help us find good ways of sharing our faith with others. I went to Thursday mornings session this week, and as I listened to a few testimonies that other people gave, it occurred to me that they sometimes, not always, but often, had one thing in common. That there was a moment in our lives when we pressed the reset button. That moment differed. It might have been a moment when we realized that there was more to life and we couldn't go on living without God. It might have been in a moment of desperation where God seemed like the only hope that we had or that made sense to us. Or a moment early in life when we realized that the faith that our parents had passed on was right for us too. Now that may be a reset button that you pressed many moons ago or one over which your finger still hovers. Speak to someone you think might help. That reset button enables us to accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and the Lord of our lives and to seek through faith in him a relationship with God which is all that was intended and that brings us forgiveness, healing, the promise of eternal life and the inheritance of glory. And for those gifts, those things are now that we, things that we can now celebrate in the remainder of our worship together. Amen.